God, no, 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 no. I went to a shooting range with my buddy Mike. You're listening to Rome School. This is the second episode about guns and the Second Amendment. I would think I would feel really vulnerable if I didn't own a firearm. And as I know it sounds strange, but... If you were going to be an artist painting a still life, it wouldn't just be bottles and fruit baskets. It would be the gun on the bedside table, because that's the American still life now, right? I, I hate them. I don't want to be around them either. Yeah, I mean, they're just they're made to kill. It's been a long time, so, you know, things fade. Bad things. You change your mind on things. Like I said, I might get a gun. I don't know, man. That's a heavy decision, man. It's not something anybody should take lightly. You know, some people, it's just like buying a new pair of pants. And at some point, we'll get to the question of how do you sleep with a genie on the loose? You can have the same kind of fun with Mattel's Tommy Burst detective set. The Tommy Burst has automatic bolt action. Fire off a burst of 10 shots. Pull the bolt again, you're reloaded. Or fire single shots like a rifle. In the detective set, you also get the Snub Nose 38 and Snap Draw Shoulder Holster. $7 wherever toys are sold. You can tell it's Mattel, it's swell. In the first episode about guns, we call it the genie is out of the bottle because there are so many guns out there already. And or the cat's out of the bag. Yeah. It's like the cat's out of the bag, only that's an expression I think that usually has to do with something that is like a secret that has been revealed. But cats aren't as harmful usually as genies. Genies, yeah, they can give you a lot of power usually. Do you know the story of the, of the genie? Are you talking about the Aladdin story? Because there's a lot of stories about genies. Yeah, basically, the, the Aladdin story and most genie stories imply that there's this great power that you summon by usually stroking a lamp, and then it comes out and it'll give you three wishes, but it's so powerful that you can't control the genie. So with guns, they give you a sense of power, and they give you this uh, way of protecting yourself if you feel like that's necessary, or hunting, but the genie doesn't want to go back in that bottle. <laughs> and that's our situation now. So what do you have to do instead? You can't put the genie back in the bottle. Say, get out! Scream. Okay, so you try screaming. That doesn't work. The genie's still in your face. What are you going to do? I wish that you would just go away and leave everybody alone. No, nope, you're all out of wishes. Genie's out of the bottle. He's in your face. What are you going to do about it? You can't really push him away because they're kind of smoke. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so elusive. You don't know where to grab onto the genie to push it away. It's all around you. So what if you tried to reason with the genie? That might work. Maybe teach it manners. What else? Um, Maybe keep it to itself. Lock it in a room. Mm. What else do you want it to be able to do? Uh, do chores. <laughs> Get the genie to do some chores. Okay. Basically, I just want this genie to play by some rules that keep um, you guys safe and me safe. So. And people. And people in general. So I'd like to have some reasonableness standards set for this genie. But if I'm going to get the genie to do anything, I can't force it to do anything because it's made of smoke and it has all these special powers and it's a, it's a mysterious, it's not something you can throw. <laughs> you can't throw a lasso around its neck, but maybe you can appeal to its higher functions, its higher reasoning. Maybe there's a way to appeal to the genie on a higher level. Do you think the genie might respond well to music or art? I think it would respond well to maybe jazz music. 
<laughs> why, why, why jazz music? Music that gypsies dance to. Yeah. Huh. Well, maybe jazz music. Okay. Maybe some other kinds of music. What, what about what about art? You know the water monster that I drew a long time ago that you said you were gonna frame and you never did. Mm-hmm. Kind of reminds me of that. That's how you think of it in your mind. Yeah. So in your mind, can you think of a way to make an appeal to that genie to stop being a, a monster and just to be peaceful water? Water isn't always peaceful. Yeah, you that's a good point. try to flush it down the drain. That's not a higher <laughs> reasoning power. Our theme for today's show, reptiles can't train genies. Only wizards and jesters can train genies. And... Artists. It's a project called Guns in the Hands of Artists, and it started about 20 years ago um, down in New Orleans. I grew up in New Orleans, a historically violent place, and uh, at the time I started it, the murder rate was kind of off the charts. A lot of people I knew were being touched by violence, robberies and murders. And Growing up in the South, guns are just a part of everyday experience, if not a rite of passage, especially for a young male growing up in the Deep South. And uh, as a response to that, um, I tried to look into ways that I could you know, use my art to initiate change somehow. I'd like you to meet two friends of ours who have strangely similar stories. They've never met, though, so I decided it was time to get them together in person. The first voice you're hearing is Brian Borello. He's an artist, a sculptor. Sometimes he does large installations involving motion, light, solar, electricity, neon, kinetic pieces. And sometimes they're more thematic. The first time he applied his art to the issue of guns was in creating a memorial garden for a four-year-old named Mikey Stewart. He was sitting on the stoop of his grandmother's house, eating a popsicle, and he was shot, got hit in the chest with a stray bullet and a drive-by, and was killed. So on the corner there was an empty lot, trash-strewn lot, and so um, the family gave me some of his personal belongings, and I took his tennis shoes, and uh, via the New Orleans Police Department, got uh, a lot of guns. And uh, so I took these guns and fashioned uh, a little memorial monument uh, with his tennis shoes uh, that were cast in metal. And then on the morning of the dedication of the garden, more handguns were thrown into the concrete. The guns were entombed, and they have this sort of mythical presence in a sense that people would walk by and kids would say, hey, there's, you know, there's guns in there and whatnot. So it was a way of sort of silencing them, but also kind of making something a little positive out of something quite negative, gun violence. This was the birth of a project called Guns in the Hands of Artists. Soon, Brian started working with other artists. Later, a project involving 60 or so artists required a lot of materials, in this case guns, so they appealed to the business community for help, which initiated a trade-in program. In order to acquire more materials, we offered uh, brand new sewing machines via the business community donation. It was 100 brand new sewing machines, brother sewing machines, and if you brought in a gun in any condition, you got a sewing machine. This was sort of a kind of a swords in the plowshares kind of gesture. And so the artists came up with anything from rosaries out of triggers and springs and parts to um, sculptures and photography and whatnot. A lot of the work, matter of fact, most of the work was inspired by personal experiences that artists had had. Artists had approached me and said, look, I really want to be in the show. You might expect the pieces generated to have a strong bias, to make a moving statement of some kind that was summarily anti-gun. But it wasn't as simple as that. I really felt like it needed to be something very subtle and very elemental, kind of 
going for the brain. My, my purpose was not to make it an anti-gun or a pro-gun in any way, but to make it just uh, about gun, an opportunity for people to look at guns and their use uh, in a different way, uh, through a different viewpoint, but really through um, the experience of art. You just say you're not anti-gun. I want to challenge that. Well, how, how are you not anti-gun? Well, I'm 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 not so much anti-gun as I'm anti-assholes. It's I you know and you know guns in the hands of assholes is really what uh, I'm against. It's not so simplistic that the gun is the cause. I feel that in a way this violent culture, the society that we're part of, is the weapon. We have been weaponized, indoctrinated at a very young age that guns can be the solution to all your problems. If you watch film, you know, the greatest 20th century art form, cinema, right? Um, how much of the solution uh, comes in the last, uh, you know, few minutes of the, of the film in the form of a, of a shootout or a mm -hmm. use of a gun? You know, somebody uses a gun to solve a situation. Right. In my heart, I feel like it really has to be something more fundamental than just political stances and regulations and whatnot, that it really has to come from a sea change that's only going to come from a shift in consciousness. And you're feeding that sea change with art? I'm trying to. My true purpose in doing this and continuing to collaborate with different artists is to somehow be able to kind of shift consciousness, even if it's just a millimeter. Hmm. You know, not about elimination or whatever, but just bringing the right attitude towards these uh, tools that we have access to. To that end, I've taken the exhibition and the display of these things, not just to the white cube of an art gallery or museum, but to gun shows, to public art. But to a gun show? To gun and knife shows, yes. Wow. So I've taken awesome. it to the Expo Center, gun and knife show, taken a booth right there between the guys who do the Glock conversions and the and, you know uh, ammunition reloading and whatnot. Um, and you know to not rub anybody's nose in anything, but just to kind of present the work that these artists have done in a just different level. And by and large, you know, the people appreciated this. They thought oh, it's clever and they would laugh and have, of course, it was some people that would come up and would take it very personally. They identified with the gun as part of their personality construct that they would, uh, you know, take offense. But, you know, my response would be if there would be, um, you know, criticism is that, you know, these were confiscated guns taken off the streets. Um, there's plenty more to go around. You know, this is like a, <laughs> yeah. a valve. And yeah. they're basically just being converted into works of art. So you're just getting a different kind of thing. I can't be critical or condemning the thing that is called the gun. Um, I think you know really gets us nowhere because again it's out the box right? right but to be able to look at how it's used and how it's kind of positioned in our culture that's where the shift can happen and then again if it can be looked at in a different way even if it's just being in the room with them and having a sense of wow okay i'm, I'm feeling something different here then i've succeeded do you think that brian helps tame the genie yes i do how because I don't think the genie would really understand it if you put it in words. So hmm. you'd have to put it out in another type of language like art. Oh, that's interesting. So you're saying that logic and words are difficult to use to combat this crazy genie, but maybe art, why, why art or music? Why would that language work differently? Um... Because sometimes it's got a different effect. Yeah? How, what, what kind? Like when you just sing the song mm -hmm. with no tone, it doesn't really put an effect. 
But then if you it's sing more it's more like talking when you sing with yeah. attitude. Like, but why? Uh, and when you sing it uh, like a sad song, you do feel something. Yeah, why is that? I have no idea. Hmm. It's an interesting question. I, I don't know if I understand it either. It sort of heightens your empathy, right? Yep. How, how much you feel for a person or a cause. Why is it that art hits us on a different level than statistics? We threw a lot of statistics out there in the last show. But you know what statistics are. They're just numbers, right? So art affects us different than numbers. If I tell you there were 20,000 suicides by gun last year because guns fell into the wrong hands, that's one thing. But if I sang you a song about one person who made that decision and took their life because they couldn't find any hope, What's your experience as a listener? How's it different between hearing the number and hearing the song? More of feeling and expression. So, yeah, keep going on that. Well, how, where does it hit you? How to explain it? Well, what I'm telling you, the number twenty thousand. What does that number mean? Can you imagine? It's, it's a number. Can you imagine twenty thousand people? It's amazing their population doesn't shrink. Because there's 20,000 people dying. Yeah. yeah it's a, but you also, you know that there's millions of people born every year. But it's a number. And you try to put meaning on a number, and it's hard. If I give you numbers only, which is statistics. That would be hard to explain. You have to like, be like 9, 8, 7, 10,000 <laughs> Well, that's, what, that's funny. That's what sometimes I feel like I sound like when I'm talking to people about gun violence. We're just throwing numbers at each other. But here are these people not throwing numbers, but throwing images and sculptures and songs. It hits the listener, it hits the viewer totally differently. When you're looking at art, are you doing math? No. What are you doing? You're using your head and really looking. Some would say using your heart. <laughs> I would say that, even though it's corny. So That's just... like the things that princesses say. Oh, God. I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> I went. I got a little cheesy there. Well done. Don't let us get cheesy in the show. Sometimes, no matter how much work you do to train the genie, it turns around and stabs you in the back. That's what it did to my friend Brian. When I was a kid, my uncle, my uncle Joe, was uh, chief of police, uh, Joe Schering. He stopped on a, on a motorway to help somebody as a good Samaritan, and he, uh, he was shot and killed. Uh, closer to home, uh, my brother, uh, in 1999, uh, was able to purchase a handgun and uh, used it on himself uh, to end his life. He was facing some challenges in his life, and at that moment, that was his solution. Yeah, yeah. You know, maybe the ease of availability um, was uh, something I've, I've struggled with. Had your brother been uh, giving any signals to anybody that he might have mental health issues or that he was depressed? Well, I can't say what his mental landscape was at the time, but I think it was obvious that um, he could have used some assistance. And I think that if there were other remedies or solutions to what he was facing at that point in his life, other than maybe, you know, a handgun, uh, he'd still be here. But I don't know. It, uh, it was, um, you know, that was the way he chose. Mm -hmm. And um, guns are pretty easy to get. 
yeah, they're very easy to get, and I think, um, uh, yeah, uh, I'm sorry, um, that, not, that doesn't seem like that long ago, 99. Your brother killed himself with a gun, but you already had this project, Guns in the Hands of Artists, when he did this? Yes. Wow. I assumed that you had been inspired to do this in, in response, but that's not true. No. I was already involved in trying to do this transformative project with Guns and Artists based on the experiences that I had already had living in a city where guns were just in everybody's purses, in everybody's waistbands, in everybody's home. And it was several years into doing this project that uh, my, my brother actually took his life wow. using a handgun. Did it seem like an impossible irony that your brother would be a victim of the same epidemic that you're working against? Well, in fact, it kind of inspired me and kind of amped me up a bit to sort of do do more because again I felt like whatever can be done to shape thought in the public in the population in this sort of culture I could either be powerless and weep and feel that I don't have power to initiate change or I could work with what I've got How old was your brother when he when he committed suicide? Uh, he was, I think it was on the, a few weeks before his 30th birthday. And your your older brother, the older Younger brother? Younger brother, he was You're my the, middle brother. middle brother. And I'm the oldest. Yeah. That other voice that you hear is Michael Dean Damra, or Mike D. He's a singer-songwriter and a fixture in the Northwest music world, but he tours all over. He plays on stages small and large, and he's worked just about every other kind of job in the music business most of his life especially security. His songs are gritty, truthful, autobiographical stories of a kid who grew up in an imperfect family, a normal kid. Guns also come into his work as an artist. Same, we got kind of the same story. You know, me and you, I grew up in total redneck stuff. Where, where'd you grow up, Mike? Oklahoma. And my dad's whole family's from Kentucky. Regular folks, you know, middle America. When I got out of the army, um, I shot a lot in the army, you know, training and, and whatnot. But uh, I remember the first time I ever killed something, uh, I was maybe 10. And uh, my dad took me and my friend out uh, hunting for rabbits. And uh, I blew the ass out of a, a cottontail. And it didn't kill it. And so I was just sitting there shaking. My father come over and stepped on its head and, and killed it. And that affected me deeply. I, was, I could never kill nothing again after that which is a, a paradox that I eat meat, and I, but it, I, I got a real distaste for killing anything. I mean, honestly, I, I, it's, it's hard to kill an ant in my kitchen. I've written songs on the, su on the, on the subject. They definitely get a reaction. It's not an obscure kind of thing. It's, it's a brick in the nose. <laughs> Breaking the news. A lot of people can relate to it in one way or another. Yeah, it tells my truth. Yeah. You know, and I'm very passionate about about how I feel about it. Okay, dear Mr. Heston, if you ever saw a 12-year-old boy's brain splattered on a kitchen wall, you'd hang your head in shame, you rifle tote and whore, you cold-blooded, old-blooded, sick-ass man. 
Brian and Mike grew up in this nest of guns and their influence, but that's just the start. Um, okay, my brother was, uh, he was born in, uh, 1980. His name was Bo, and, uh, I named him. Good kid, he, uh, good-looking kid. He was in, um, he was killed when he was 12. And um, he was with my other brother, Josh, who was four years older. My stepmom and my dad were uh, gun people. They always had guns, real stereotypical. He always loved his guns. He never wanted to give them up. He romanticized them. His, in his fantasy world, he had a room with guns and, you know, uh, rifleman kind of stuff, those kind of lever action things. And uh, he had this uh, Colt original issue from the cavalry in the 18-whatever-60. Big cowboy gun. Both Josh and Bo had uh, experience with guns, been to the range, classes, all that kind of stuff. And, um, and so, you know, we didn't think much about it because they were always around the house, you know safety issues but uh josh the gun had went off while he was holding it it shot him in the head my mom calls me um and she says bo been shot and had been killed and i you know i it just kicked my ass you know it's weird after all this took place i had to take care of my old man he couldn't function anymore it just took his life you know it just took his soul howled like an animal every night after this happened, you know. I, it's still, sometimes I can't fathom, you know, it just washes over me. Like, they said the piece of lead that killed him was so small, they just left it in because they couldn't find it. You know, such a small little projectile that it, because it was a 22 that it killed him. A 22 caliber is less than a quarter of an inch. It's just a little bit bigger around than a BB. Josh, the older brother, never gave up guns, and later he went to prison for unrelated crimes. Mike, lately, has been thinking about getting a gun. Politics, uprising, resistance, a fear of the new government. We talked to several people who were considering arming themselves for the first time. So, I detest guns. That's why the thought of even thinking about getting one now is like a, a contradiction inside of me. Last week I was at work doing security stuff and uh, one of the security guys, you know, because I've been thinking about it, he let me hold his gun, loaded, and I just, I was just shaking, like the, the immense power of this thing, the power of life or death, like just holding it was overwhelming and just brutal. And how people take this so lightly, they just go out and buy them, like you said, it's so easy. Buy them like it's a toy, and how Hollywood glamorizes it. When somebody gets shot, and they fall down. Do you think you think the guns are too easy to get a hold of? Oh man, you just yeah. It seems they like got, an obvious question, you but got barrel stock like uh, stocks and it's pink and blue, and you know they're all pretty and you know built for little kids. We glorify all this kind of stuff, and we're, we're a weird society, man. We're a weird bunch. Your squad is ready for you to lead them through with Johnny 7 OMA, you charge! Fire grenade! Bullseye for Johnny 7! Watch out, tank! Fire anti-armor shell! Fire anti-tank rocket! Johnny 7's got him on the run! Johnny 7 fires bullets like a rifle! 
fires like a Tommy gun. Now it's a cap-firing pistol. You've won with Johnny Seven, the one-man army gun. It's seven guns in one. Let's count them. One is a grenade launcher. Two anti-armor gun. Three anti-tank gun. Four bullet-firing rifle. Five Tommy gun. Six anti-bunker gun. Seven cap-firing pistol. There's no other gun like it. To be sure, look for Johnny Seven, OMA, the one-man army by Topper. It seems like at some point in our childhood, boys, anyway, we all want to be war heroes, or at least we're led to believe that we should want this. But despite our armed forces, we don't have an every man's army. Not everybody serves. Some just pretend as kids. Or they grow up looking through a lens that causes them to arm themselves for a variety of perceived reasons. Some real, others maybe the stuff of fantasy. We all look through our own lens as it applies to our own history and everything around us, and we end up with polarized views. We've got a more individualistic conception of what weapons are meant to be, where everybody's kind of taken the uh, every man for himself. Yeah, uh, watching Rambo movies, they're watching movies too much. Yeah. You know? And I think that sort of worldview, yeah. where we're all kind of cowboys, going to go it alone, and everybody's going to take care of their family and their peace, you yeah. know, it kind of implies this... Uh, isolationist kind of disconnected quality you know we're social beings and we're all part of the same organism all sort of the same culture and uh, somehow we've got to figure out how to be able to make sense of weaponry at the same time feeling safe uh, making sense of our fears and insecurities but not having to weaponize to do that you're listening to Rome School you can see some of Brian Borello's work at brianborello.com slash guns in the hands of artists Michael Dean Dameron's music and his touring schedule are up at Bandcamp slash Michael Dean Dameron, or just go to iTunes and look for him. Mike D. mentioned Rambo movies. Rambo, oddly enough, represents the struggle between the armed individual and the armed forces. These are two components of the Second Amendment, and they're not currently living in harmony, and probably never will. Well, a lot of people talk about the inalienable right to bear arms, but that's only the second half of the constitutional amendment. I think the important thing to remember is the first part that talked about a well-regulated militia. When the amendments were first formed, the founders were very strongly opposed to a standing army. It was seen as too British, and we were, as people might remember, escaping the Brits at the time. Do you have someone that you go to when you can't remember stuff that you learned in your high school U.S. history class? For me, that's George. There was a strong movement, um, Thomas Jefferson among them, who thought that maybe this new country that we were just forming should not have any kind of a standing military, that instead we would depend, in the case of a national emergency, on all the farmers and civilians in the country grabbing their guns, as we did during the revolution, and going out and um, driving the redcoats off the land. Is that what a militia is? That's what it was in those days. It was a very specific thing. It was people trained as a member of a well-regulated militia who would then join together on a um, as-needed basis. So we've lost the well-regulated part of it. We've lost the original meaning of the word militia. The Second Amendment came along before 
the army. That's right. The whole idea of having a standing army, we were creating a new country in those days, and we were going to do a lot of things differently. And one of the things that many people wanted to do differently was to not have a standing army, which is a good dream to have that you are not going to engage in wars. But the world was a very dangerous place then. Not to have an army is just inviting takeover by the French, the Spanish, the English once again or the Indians. So for the Revolutionary War, an army, the Continental Army, was formed, but just to fight that war, and then it was disbanded after the war. General Washington announced his retirement and ostensibly followed the Republican ideal, of the time anyway, of not having a standing army. Basically, the next few years brought debate about the size and the purpose of the standing army. There was one, the first regiment, it was formed right after the Revolutionary War. It's just that it was used mostly to fend off Native Americans along the western frontier, and in some cases to come to the aid of state militias. But I wonder, what are today's militias considering when they lobby for the right to arm themselves to the teeth? And who's really fueling these efforts? They're talking about a fear that the government will rise up and that their own government must at some time be confronted or will confront them. It's a defensive It's uh, a defensive, it, it is. The militias that the Constitution is talking about are just not part of our world anymore. There are private militias out there, but those are not you know, well-regulated militias by the, sub, under the control of the states. These are private groups calling themselves militias. Those are not the militias that the Constitution is talking about. This is Jim Oleski, a law professor at Lewis and Clark. He's a constitutional scholar and a former special assistant to President Obama. In brief, I promise, we're going to look at what the Supreme Court has had to say about the Second Amendment. And I'll spoil it for you right here. Not much. There's only one relevant modern case that gives guidance to how the High Court interprets the Second Amendment. Heller, 2008. So when you go talk to people who are arming themselves to the teeth, uh, as soon as you question why would somebody need an assault rifle to defend their home, it turns to the government coming and getting our guns. Obama, others, going to take our guns away. And if the government does that, then they will turn their guns on us if they don't like us. The David Koresh type of militia mentality. How does this fit into the, the reasons that the Second Amendment exists? So there is a great debate <laughs> over the historical origins of the Second Amendment. And most recently at the Supreme Court, they had a, a very extensive debate on the history. They split right down the middle, five members of the court interpreting it one way, four members the other way. And they disagreed on the history about whether or not the amendment was specifically tailored to the need for the militia at a time where we did not have the standing army that we have today was limited to that context, that specific context, or whether it also protected an underlying pre-existing individual right to defend oneself. And the majority makes the argument that one of the things that the Americans were reacting to when they enacted the Second Amendment was that one way uh, governments would exercise control over the people was by disarming. and guaranteeing the right to bear arms was a reaction to those limitations. The notion of we have to have the right to bear arms because of the threat of an onerous government is certainly part of the strain of thought that the majority relies on in guaranteeing the individual right to bear arms in the Heller decision. 
when the high court of the land speculates that, yes, the government may turn its guns on its own citizenry. What does that mean? Do you have do you have a, a reaction to that when they Well, I would not say that that's what the court is saying. The court is describing a sentiment that existed about past governments, governments uh, that predated the United States government and a safeguard that the founders were putting in in light of that. I, I don't I would not read the members of the Supreme Court as making a commentary about the prospects of our government turning on the people. We wouldn't let people arm themselves in the way that would be necessary today to fight off an oppressive federal government. This is what Justice Scalia says. It may well be true today that a militia, to be as effective as militias in the 18th century, would require sophisticated arms that are highly unusual in society at large. Indeed, it may be true that no amount of small arms could be useful against modern-day bombers and tanks, but the fact that modern developments have limited the degree of fit between the prefatory clause about the militia and the protected right cannot change our interpretation of the right. So regardless of the fact that today the whole militia clause may be moot because you could never have a militia, um, that doesn't change the fact that we still have this other part of the clause that says there's a right to bear arms. And we're still going to give effect to that right, even if the clause about the militia is no longer is moot, moot, is moot in, in modern times. Okay, grammar geeks, logic geeks, take a minute here and go with me on this. The Second Amendment, it has 27 words. And as we pointed out in the last episode, almost every one of these words has been debated for thousands of pages worth of scholarly writing. On top of that, there are three commas in the Second Amendment, which are even more hotly debated. In fact, the modern understanding, Scalia's opinion, hinges on a comma. There are two clauses in this thing, right? A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state and the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Those are the two clauses. So much of the gun debate hinges on what the commas are accomplishing here in this grammatically convoluted jumble. Judges, in fact, have based opinions on what the middle commas intent was, even though commas in the 18th century didn't have an established usage. Commas were still very much evolving. In fact, the other two commas are completely superfluous. They have zero effect other than to clutter the page. So, comma, if, comma, like me, comma, you are bothered by the insertion of a superfluous comma, comma, this might drive you crazy. Here it is. A well-regulated militia, comma, being necessary to the security of a free state, comma, the right of the people to keep and bear arms, comma, shall not be infringed. Okay, enough of my rant about commas. But remember that the whole meaning of this thing is based on Scalia holding that that first clause is prefatory, a preface, just a clearing of the throat. And what he's saying is, yes, it's moot. Militias aren't a thing anymore. But since the first one's just prefatory, that second clause about bearing arms is an independent clause that stands on its own. Scalia even acknowledges the causal link between the two clauses. He said, yes, people did fear an oppressive government or invading government, so their right to arm themselves was put into the Constitution. That's why it's there. Yet, despite the mootness of the reason that the right exists, the right lives on, fully protected by the court. Okay, my grammar rant is over. I'm not even going to touch upon the issue of capitalization in this thing. The words militia, state, and arms are capitalized, but people is not. 
Such a mess to unpack. So there is an individual right to have arms for self-defense. So there is a right. There Besides is. sustenance and hunting, what exactly, what does the right consist of? So that is the unsettled question. Justice Scalia said there is a right, but he then said it's not unlimited. We've historically had limitations on the right. We've limited who can have arms, uh, people with mental illnesses, uh, felons. And then he talked about how we have prohibited certain types of weapons. And the phrase he used was unusual and dangerous. Well, what does that mean? That is not a crystal clear phrase. Handguns are not unusual and dangerous, according to the court. These semi-automatics? Well, that's one of the questions that's working its way through the lower court. And the courts are going to have to, going forward, work through what does that phrase cover and what does that phrase uh, not cover. And we'll see. One thing that's interesting is because of the five to four split, because Justice Scalia was the deciding vote in that last case, some people thought that the direction of the law might change if Secretary Clinton got elected and appointed the next justice. Of course, now that President Trump was elected, one would expect that it's more likely that a future justice would stick with Justice Scalia's position and that that case will continue to be given effect going forward. And the question will be, okay, where are the limits? So even if you're sick of hearing about guns and gun laws in the courts, the Supreme Court has just begun to lay down the law about what the Second Amendment means. The court usually considers the narrowest possible fact problems that it can. And in this case, it was a decision of very limited reach. This first case was, for the court, the majority relatively easy one, handguns in the home. This is the, this is the first time that the Supreme Court has actually recognized the individual right to bear arms. Correct. 2008, the Heller decision is unequivocally a recognition of a right that the court had not clearly recognized previously. A major victory for gun rights. Do you have any ideas about how we're going to find our way through to come up with a solution so that we can make it more safe to live in America with this right to bear arms um, on our shoulders or in our holster, however you want to look at it? I have very little optimism in the short term that there will be meaningful compromise in legislation in this area. I think that if the slaughter of young children in an elementary school is not enough of an impetus for compromise and passage of legislation at the federal level, there is likely very little that would be. And why is that? You worked in Washington. You watched some of these people deal with these issues from a legal standpoint and from a sort of a popular standpoint in terms of how it affected their constituency and their support. Why is it so hard? I think this is an issue on which there are members of Congress who feel that there is no political benefit to passing any sort of gun control, what would be perceived as gun control legislation. The influence of the NRA, that they have a bigger influence than advocacy organizations on other issues. They have been very successful in pushing a message. In light of the lack of anything passing post-Newtown, it seems very unlikely that anything's going to pass in the foreseeable future. Even if you could get political support for something to pass, 
whatever that thing is might well get challenged in court as violating the Second Amendment. And so there are two barriers, both the political barrier and then potentially the legal barrier to any solution that people might agree on. I used to be one of those people who judged people with guns. Then I found out that so many people I know have guns, a lot of them. Mike is one of the most reasonable people I know, and also owns guns. I haven't seen you forever. How's it going? How are you? How are things out here? Fantastic. He lives out in the country. He has a beautiful house and a wife, two kids. They keep horses. They have a view of the mountain. How do you feel about the Second Amendment? Great question, great question. Um, I guess I'm really in the middle. I'm stuck in the middle of the road. It's kind of tough. It gets talked about a lot, and it seems like whenever it gets debated, people are forced to take a side that may be more extreme than they might naturally feel. Yeah, you're in the middle of uh, Los Angeles, and you need to join this, this red gang or this blue gang, you know. It's not something that I just generally bring up and talk about as far as being a gun owner. It seems like it's almost uh, looked down upon, like, from a like a moral or even a character standpoint by uh, you know certain individuals and, and their beliefs. No judgment here. I wouldn't be standing in Mike's man cave next to his fireplace with my seven-year-old daughters unless I knew him well enough to trust him. I'm not sure about his toddler daughter, but toddlers always kind of freak me out. I think of Mike as a typical gun owner, not the type you see portrayed in either of the spinning extreme mechanisms of media, the left or the right, the pro-gun or anti-gun. So we ask Mike some questions dealing with regulations that have come up in our roaming research that we've been wondering about. You know, I think there's a lot of uh, slippery slope element that goes into uh, gun ownership and almost fanaticism, like like get a gun, they get more guns, and then they kind of get into it as a hobby, but next thing you know, they have this massive collection. There's also the end of days um, and then militia type sentiment that kind of surrounds gun owners. You know, you read online, you look at uh, specific forums, and it's not very far before you get into the doomsday preppers people with these massive gun collections. You know, they'd have some dehydrated foods and some MREs and some canned food, and then they would have a room full of 100,000 ant rounds and then all these uh, automatic rifles. Gun ho! Here come the gun ho commandos, best equipped boys in the field. All the equipment you need for fun and excitement in the gung-ho commando outfit by Marks. Just look at all the things you get. A cap-shooting automatic with gun belt and holster. A cat-firing gung-ho hand grenade. And look here. This flashing battery-powered machine gun with moving ammo belt shoots rapid-fire bullets. There's a real-looking walkie-talkie, too. Medals and battle ribbons. Even dog tags. It's all for fun and excitement. Get the outfit with all the equipment you need. The Gung-Ho Commando Outfit. Gung-Ho! By Marks. Go ahead. What's your favorite type of gun? My gun use and gun collection is small. It's not uh, really spread across the board. It's more uh, 
useful nature. So I have a shotgun, like a long gun, long rifle, and then I have a handgun, and then my wife has a handgun. So pragmatically, we have this list of safety features. You can have a smart gun. You, that, like a smartphone? Like a smart, exactly like a smartphone. The, the grip of the gun uh, needs to feel your palm print in order to operate, or, or you have a ring with a chip in it. So if it didn't affect the functionality of the gun or uh, grossly affect the cost of the gun, is there any reason not to make guns safer? Because it seems like a regular guy like yourself would rather... You've got kids, 100%, right? yeah. I would, I would absolutely go for... Uh, absolutely, there's, not, there's no question in my mind. The whole purpose for me to own a weapon is for defense because I'm not going to rely on the county sheriff to get here in the time that I need uh, this protection and this self-defense. So, you know, you can't rely on anybody else, and that's that's the standpoint. That's the reason I have guns. You live a ways yeah. up. You know, yeah. so if you had an intruder, um, you, you got a sign out there that says, we don't call 911, yeah. and it's got two guns on it. <laughs> right, right. And that's like our gargoyle on a cathedral, you know. I mean, <laughs> somebody gave that to us as a gag. Like, we didn't seek that out. I right. mean, I put it up there for that reason, and... It's more of a joke than anything else. I know that you're not a hostile person, but it also says that you're a gun owner saying... Think twice. Think twice before you come yeah. in here and mess with me. I, yeah. I don't rely on the institution of the emergency phone call system. So another idea was um, for semi-automatic weapons, mm -hmm. a magazine disconnect mechanism. Why would a shooter, somebody who likes to go out and do target practice or something, why would they resist... Uh, a capacity limitation or uh, a disconnect mechanism for, for the magazine. What would the disadvantage of that be? I don't see one. I don't see one. Have you ever been in a position where you feel like you're afraid of a gun? Afraid of a gun? No, I can't say specifically that I have. Have you? Mm, kind of. When? In the gun room. There's I a dead wolf. Somebody. What is your funnest time you've ever had with a gun? Oh, interesting. Um, I mean, shooting guns is fun. I mean, target shooting, uh, even going to the pistol range um, at the sheriff's office and shooting, it's fun. What is fun about it? Did you say you've never shot a gun? Well, I've shot a BB gun. That's it. You ever shot an actual gun? Never have. Oh, okay. Well, tell me about it. Why is I don't it so know great? that you can explain it. It's just uh... maybe it's like a typewriter, and you like having to push hard instead of just pushing light on a computer and stuff. That's interesting because you really do like that act of typing and hitting the keys yeah, yeah, yeah. vigorously, <laughs> vigorously, and having that ink show up on the page. Is it like that, or what's it like? Well, maybe it's just the 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 power of it. You know, you're kind of in awe of the whole scenario. There's a, a you know a major explosion taking place that you're responsible for, a projectile leaving the barrel and <laughs> heading towards its target, and just the noise, the concussion. I mean, and it is a really, you know, it's an object of great power that needs to be respected. So there's this awe around it where you're making sure everything's safe. You got your ear protection, your eye protection, your targets out at an appropriate distance, and. The training center actually has um, an on-duty sheriff. You can use, um, take your own handguns, or you can rent handguns there, try out different handguns, and then you buy all your ammunition there. So then you go up to a booth, just like you've you know, seen in the movies, and wind out your, your target out to whatever distance you want, and then you start shooting. Is it outside or inside? It's inside. 
It's right by Toys R Us. It's across the street from Toys R Us. Huh. That doesn't sound right. Across <laughs> from a toy store? Well, <laughs> why doesn't it sound right? Uh, because I don't think guns and toys go together. Because toys you play with, guns you're not supposed to play with. My name's Snubby Gun. This is my beat. My game, I'm a private eye. Call me anytime. When I play private eye, I come fully equipped with Mattel Snub Nose 38, Snap Draw Shoulder Holster, ready for action on a moment's notice. Practice target shooting whenever you can. If you want to play private eye, get this Mattel gun and holster set. Get extra greeny sticking caps too. You can tell us, Mattel. It's swell. Well, I think, first of all, they're beautifully engineered devices. Um, they look dramatic. Try this one, partner. Looks like real. Sounds like real. There's a great bit of satisfaction that can come from firing a gun, and I don't know if it's a combination of the warm wood stock up against your face. The sound of power military rifle and western rifle by Marks. The sound of it that can be off-putting to some people can be very exciting. That's a tune they didn't expect. The new Zero M radio rifle. Looks like a radio, but touch this button. To get your Zero M radio rifle, just remember the password. Zero M. Um, the sense of remote damage done. It, it is a feeling of power, I think. And just the feeling of holding something so well-constructed in your, in your hands. Part of what I did with my art project was to take artists who had never fired a gun before and uh, took them to the range. To shoot? And to shoot. Did they yeah. like it? Did they get a positive experience from it? I think it was, I think it was a moment of uh, enlightenment. They kind of saw, wow, this is what that's all about. It's kind of crazy and it's loud and it's, you know, it's got this juice, um, but also uh, I think the destructive power kind of hit home too because you're seeing you know, the holes getting shredded in a target. So I think that was um, important for them to have that experience and I think for other people to be able to experience on a more personal level, you know, mm -hmm. not on the wrong end of a gun, but to have something more experiential about what it actually means to, to have a weapon, to, to handle a weapon. Don't tell me you bought a gun! God, no, 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 no. I went to a shooting range with my buddy Mike, and I fired several different kinds of guns. It was weird. Did you like it? Um, it was something that I was really curious about, and I'd never done it before, and I thought that it would be interesting to do, and sure enough, it was interesting. Did I like it? Ah, I like getting a foot massage better. Uh, but it was interesting. Like, on a scale of 1 through 10, what number would you pick? Five, five and a half. Uh, um, can I go there sometime? Nope. Why? I don't think they let anybody in who's under 12, and even if they did, I, well, I don't want you to fire a gun. Why? You got to fire them. I also get to drive a vehicle, and... Why? Have a bank account? Um, yeah, I have a bank account because, in short, you're too young. I felt like I needed to try shooting one or else I wouldn't be able to talk about the subject matter of this show. 
Yeah, but so we gotta talk about the subject matter of the show too. Yeah, but your job is to just ask childlike questions. This is gonna be a very dumb question. Wait, wait, wait a second. Are there such things as dumb questions? Are no. there? Yes. Uh, <laughs> no, not in my book. There aren't. Okay. Then. So go ahead, though. This is not gonna be one of them. Okay. What did it feel like when you're shooting? It felt like I had a controlled explosion going on in my hand, and that I was in charge of this explosion, and I could just squeeze the trigger a little bit and control when it happened. But it still felt like I didn't have control of the thing. It's hard to explain, but I felt, yes, I could trigger this thing. But for example, I couldn't aim it exactly. I wanted to hit the middle of the target, but I kept hitting six inches away from the middle of the target. A couple that, that's because it was your first time. No one can hit straight on target the first time. Well, it, it felt strangely like I was controlling a very powerful thing, yet I didn't have any control over it. And so that's why Did I- Did you feel free? That's a good question. No, I did not feel free. Because there's so many things that could go wrong with a gun. And you're wearing the protective ear things that are clinging to your head, and you're wearing eye goggles, and you have to fire at, a, at the target. It's a pretty controlled environment, a shooting range. You don't exactly feel free. But you do feel like you're in command of this powerful thing. Somewhat. What did the shooting range look like, just out of curiosity? Was it in an orchard? Was it? No, it was indoors. Wow. It's in a warehouse with a low ceiling, and it's a soundproof room. It has double thick walls. It has non-reflective surfaces. What's kind of crazy about it is that anybody can go in there. I, I was a man off the street, and I walked in, and three minutes later, they gave me a gun, fully loaded, and I was in a room full of people, and they all had guns that were fully loaded. So here's my strange observation. You want to hear my strange observation? Yes. I'm in a room full of people. We've all got guns. All the guns are loaded. And nobody's doing anything crazy. Everybody's shooting in the same direction and following all the rules. And in a strange way, even though I had very little in common with any of these people, in a strange way, it made me feel safer in a weird way. But I know that doesn't make any sense. It's crazy. It makes sense. When people are crazy around dangerous objects, it would make you feel scared, like when people are crazy around fire. Totally. But when they're just sitting still and rushing much smell, you would feel more safe. And like when people have respect for the fire. fire. Yes. Yeah, you're right. I, I totally and agree. Respect for the guns. It makes total sense. Okay, so you bring up a really good example. So have you ever been to a fire and there's little kids around the fire and maybe a girl with long hair turns her back on the fire and somebody pulls her away from the fire because her hair is going to catch on fire? Yeah. So I think I had to do that to you once. See, a lot of people don't realize that the way they're handling something might be dangerous. So they think they're being respectful to the fire, but they're not. And in this case, everybody was being respectful to the guns because this was the most controlled environment you could possibly have for guns. The problem with my little feeling of safety and the, way, the whole way it falls apart is that the second I leave that building, if I walk out of that building and I've got a gun, Suddenly I'm not in a super controlled environment anymore. And if anything happens, if I drop it, if I leave it on the gas pump while I'm getting gas, or if somebody takes it from me, or anything, that gun, which was just moments ago extremely controlled, becomes extremely dangerous. That's the thing about guns that freaks like me out. Like it's holding along another thing you have to take responsibility of. Hugely, yes. Very much. 
the fire analogy actually works really well because some people are very respectful of fire. Other people, not so much. Kind of like that with guns. Only fire may do a lot of minor damage before it hurts anybody in a severe way, but guns can pretty much kill you dead on the first mishandle. It's a nice, happy driving conversation, isn't it? So at the shooting range, we walk in, and after nosing around the lounge for a few minutes, we approach the counter. It's a big open counter. Behind it, there's a wall of guns, probably 50 handguns or so. There's two guys working, and one of them greets us. Doing well? You got your paperwork from last time? No, never been First time here? First time here. All right, we're going to have you watch a little video over here on the monitor. The video is just 15 or 20 feet away. It's on the wall. It's playing on demand on a wall next to the bathroom door. Opening the action and checking the chamber is the best way to determine if a firearm is loaded It's mostly common sense, I guess, as common sense as you can be about this tool. In less than three minutes, I'm handed a single sheet of paper with 12 true or false questions. All right. Did you guys just finish the video? Let me show you the paperwork. I'm Said you read and understood. Signed date bottom. Have seen one of the round tables. You're not back out. I take the quiz, and a minute later, I'm back at the counter. The guy looks at my score for not even one second as I nervously stand there, wondering how I did. Answers to a couple of these. You got them all right. Oh, you yeah, just don't, I know the pattern. Answer. And do you have a gun? No, you... no, I was going to rent one. Okay. Was... What gun did you want to rent? I have no idea. I've never shot a gun before. We have a lot of those. I'd go with a nine if you had a shot. It seems like it's exciting for the guys behind the counter and the other people kind of standing around. A new guy there who's never shot before. That's what it's going to put that in your hand? Okay. You haven't shot an all before? Never. Okay. okay. So basically you want to be put your first hand on the gun as if you're going to shoot it one-handed. Okay. So where would you put your second hand? Gosh, you know, I really, I really don't know. Okay, leave this where it is, and then put your second hand up. Because you want to be able to have the same grip on it one-handed as you would whenever you shoot it any other time. Okay. You don't want to do what you see on TV people doing. Stand normal. Bring the gun up to the So this is your slide stop. It's not a slide release. You see on TV, they use that to release the slide. That's not what it's there for. Okay. okay so I'm going to give it to you with a mag out and slide log back. That's how we're going to see. So that and a few other bits of advice were my introduction to the gun. And just like that, I had a gun in my hand. A Glock 9mm centerfire semi-automatic pistol. You don't have to keep reloading. You just keep shooting. In this case, 17 shots before you have to snap another loaded mag into the gun. All right, we're going in. Business keeps rolling in. If you bring your own gun, you have to show it to these guys for inspection. And this is for safety, but it also seems to allow everyone to totally geek out. It's quite a scene, the gun range. LCP custom, so it's got the red trigger and the bigger size. Oh, okay. I, I like that, because he's got the same Kel-Tec One guy has brought in a semi-automatic rifle, and he's customized it. And we're all standing around, checking it out, asking questions. How'd you do it? Um, it's, so you use testers, um, uh, model enamel paint yeah. with a toothpick, yeah, and then just rub over yeah, the top really cool. with solvent, and it cleans it up. See, that's how I've heard people doing it. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was actually really easy. I just watched a couple of videos. I got, yeah, it turned out great on my first time, so. What'd you do to it? Um, just to infill the insignias, yeah, with a little. Okay, just make it, give it a little yeah. style. Yeah, totally. Got do it. you have a suppressor? Um, I do, yes. Hi, partner, Reese. Hi, fellas. Roy Rogers. Hey, that's a pretty tricky hat, isn't it? Partners, how would you like to surprise your pals like that? Well, you can with my new Roy Rogers quick shooter hat. And here's how the quick shooter hat works. 
Just press this secret button right here, and a replica of an authentic Western pistol pops out and fires. It's your secret weapon, even when they think you're unarmed. Let me ask you guys something. About guns, I'm gonna bet. What do you think the thrill is? I think it would make them feel powerful, like they have a weapon. You can kill. In school, you're not allowed to play guns. Oh, you're not? You're not allowed to play guns in school? No. You can't hold up your fingers and go, bam, bam? No. Why is that? I think it's because someone could use, like, I have a gun, and poke someone like this. And then, then, it would be kind of like bullying someone. What do you think the thrill is? I think it would make them feel powerful, like they have a weapon. About power, coming back to this. Taming the genie is going to take a lot of power. But I'd really like to start sleeping better again. We were on the East Coast last fall in Natick, a small town in Massachusetts, just taking a break from driving. We were walking around, and from inside a church, we heard a choir. The doors were halfway open, so we snuck in and listened. It turns out it was a high school choir doing their final practice to get ready for this event that was about to take place on the adjacent town square. The director of the choir had done an arrangement of an Alicia Keys song, Powerful. Several other groups were loading equipment onto the square, so we stuck around and we watched the event. Well, it turns out that Congress did one thing. They voted to create a national day to honor murder victims, which resulted in concerts across America in September. There were thousands of these events from Portland, Maine to Portland, Oregon, in small towns and in big cities, and we had stumbled on one. Before the music, police officer Lieutenant Lazan spoke. The drumbeat of death by gun that claims 30,000 lives every single year must stop. Together, we must demand safety for our children, our community, our police officers, and our country. Thank you and God bless. To understand someone, say like to understand my brother or understand ourselves, we have to understand what our relationships are with guns. Um, it's problematic. They're available. Uh, they're profitable for a lot of people. Uh, they're collectible and all that. And they're used in all these different ways. But to leave it unexamined, I think, is, is lethal. There's no easy way to tame the genie, but... We're not going to do it using fear alone. In my opinion, the only way to really get into a good space with this is to rise above the divisiveness of anti-gun, pro-gun, you know, Republican, Democrat, you know, all these sort of lines that we're sort of drawing, because I think that kind of keeps us mired in the mud. Bring the conversation to a higher level out of the reptilian uh, amygdala brain, the fear brain that is about fight or flight and immediate knee-jerk response into something more sophisticated, the, the visual cortex, which is the seat of imagination and creativity and possible solutions, right? We've got to be able to find our commonalities and we we didn't evolve with sharp teeth and antlers and spines and poisons and our stingers and whatnot. Um, we have developed tool use. And so that's just part of our heritage and that's gonna keep being part of our heritage. And we've gotta make sense of that if we're gonna survive as a species. Powerful. 
Thanks very much for listening. This has been Rome Schooled, the genie's out of the bottle. Rome Schooled is written and produced by me, Jim Brunberg, with a lot of help from my daughters, Dana and Veronica. Production from Lydia Ritchie, Ben Landsverk, and I make the music under the name Wonderly. An assistant production now from Alexis Kenyon. We're now a nonprofit, so please visit our website, donate if you can, and check out the really cool slideshows for each episode that Lydia Ritchie puts together. Thanks for listening. We'll see you out there on the road. <laughs>